0: Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me of my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings, my sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict, completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt and sin from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all of my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside of me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me from violence, God, God of my salvation, so that my tongue can sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will proclaim your praise. If you you don't want sacrifices, if I give an entirely burned offering, you wouldn't be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. Do good things for Zion by your favor. Rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness, entirely burned offerings, and complete offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. The word of the Lord.
1: Oh, A year of disruption and unveiling and isolation and suffering at every level can do some pretty strange things to our emotional lives. We all have our ways to cope and our thresholds that we're able to engage with these feelings. Oftentimes we're unaware of the ways that our hearts are being formed in this time. I don't know about you, but I started this season not knowing how long it was gonna go and I'm not sure I made preparations for this. And then by the time I realized it, I don't think I had the resources or the energy to kind of go back and completely reconstitute how my life was going to be organized in this new normal. Not to mention, all of us experiencing deep trauma of living in a time when babies are born and holding them and fawning over them is restricted when people are going into the hospital and sometimes can't even have one person with them when weddings are being drastically altered and reception focused blowouts are being turned into small massed gatherings with limited guest list and all this overlay of stress and guilt. A time when Kids' first kindergarten experiences are in front of screens in their PJs, or when others are falling behind because their Wi-Fi is spotty, or their homes were never meant to be schools, and their parents were never meant to be teachers. Not to mention, this year would have been taxing even for a healthful society. Are you know? These are nothing new. That I'm mentioning the racial violence and white supremacy that's been on fuller display and the ways that power and principalities grab for and maintain power at the expense of others has been dazzlingly depressing. Sprinkle in, of course, some looming climate disaster and some homegrown terror and radicalism that make you wonder is a civil war going to happen and friends you see that this is a time of emotional excess, bigger than our bandwidth for it. This all seems so obvious, but when you lay it out, uh, it's even more evident. Sometimes you have to experience this excess for yourself though. My experience of this excess, where I tipped over the tipping point, happened of all places recently at the Super Bowl. I was sitting next to Titus and a few thousand of my closest cardboard cutout friends in Raymond James Stadium. And there are all the lights and all the sounds and all the pyrotechnics, literal pyrotechnics. And it was all turned up to 11. Do you remember the, the notch on the uh, amp on spinal tap turned up to 11? That's what the Super Bowl is if you've never been. And I made the joke all weekend and sometimes it got like a little bit of a chuckle, sometimes not that every time someone was doing something kind of like overboard or with like a little extra aplomb or too much enthusiasm. um, Like for instance, uh, a, a streaker ran onto the field during the game and the security guard like extra violently hit him, you know, and, and took him in custody or like, there was a pit preacher outside of the super bowl that was yelling with like an extra fierce growl that God doesn't care about your soul or God doesn't care about football. He cares about your souls. And like, like really enthusiastic. And I would make the joke, every time I saw one of those people, I'd say, this is their super bowl. You know, like this is, this is the time. Right. Um, So everyone felt tapped into like the emotional highs but my, my emotional levy broke before the first snap of the game, before what for us was like ultimately an amazing game to be a part of. It happened even before that, when I think, I, I think you were able to see this at home too. Um, the poet from the inauguration Amanda Gorman had a, an original poem featuring a first responder from each city or a special person. And to be honest, I'm not really even sure how good the poem was. Uh, It probably couldn't hold up to how good the inauguration performance was. But as I cast my eyes to the screen, I realized I was just soaking my mask with tears. I just lost it. An excess of emotion in the most excessive place. This is what poetry is meant for excessive meaning in really dense words. They carry more than they are. That's why there's this thing known as the, the heresy of paraphrase. Um, it's kind of like this with jokes. Like you don't talk about what the poem means, or you don't try to explain the joke. You just tell, tell the poem or tell the joke. Times like these of emotional excess call for words that are durable heavy-duty syntax for trying times. I think that's why so much of our Bibles, scriptures we share with our Jewish brothers and sisters, contain poetry, songs for sighing, songs for people to sing and hear together with God. And that's also why this Lent, so much of our liturgy and our devotional material is going to be like, multifaceted and multisensory. We're placing poems like the Scott Carnes poem that Anna read alongside prayers alongside Psalms alongside simple devotional practices, because we need all of the different kinds of words possible to express into uh, to express our emotions and to form us. The hope is that we can learn an emotional vocabulary with God together and if you remember learning vocabulary list when you're a kid this happens first that you're kind of clumsy and you don't use these words well or right or you don't feel comfortable making them your own but ultimately these words of intimacy and protest and hope become our words and they give voice to some of our lament that maybe has lie dormant because of our idleness or our exhaustion or the ways that we feel like we need to despair and can't give voice to these. Lent is a time for disciplining and expressing our emotional excess. And we do this with some of the tools and some of the gifts of scripture and community. So we journey together in these 40 days with and to an almighty God to whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and no secrets are hidden. And we use words to express this. Uh, My friend, David Taylor, uh, I knew him from Duke, and now he's a professor. And he wrote a book on the Psalms called Open and Unafraid about how the Psalms are emotional language. And he says, what the Psalms offer us is a powerful aid to unhide to stand honestly before God without fear, to face one another uh, vulnerably without shame, and to encounter life in the world without any of the secrets that would demean or distort our humanity. So when is the time where we're growing into our humanity? The Psalms then he says, are for those who know that they spend much of their life hiding secrets they're also for those who know that standing in the presence of God is the place where such secrets cannot and must not be hidden. So today we begin with a psalm that you've heard a couple of different ways, and it's not technically considered a psalm of lament, Psalm 51. Those are mostly communal psalms. They're often externally focused at Things that are happening or uh, things people are doing to you or in the world. These, we'll get to these and they'll be really valuable for this season when we grieve our common state and we cry out for God's intervention. But Psalm 51 is just a confession. (laughs) Just a confession. Maybe confessions are like the first kind of lament in some way to confess like David does in this psalm is to recognize that things aren't good in that I'm at least partly responsible for it this is the on-ramp to change things aren't good and I have a part in that to confess without qualification or justification is to stand before God and to stand before others, and it is to choose to forego our usual defense mechanisms. I guess our primary defense mechanism is not to confess, right? But once we start to confess, we choose to forego all these defense mechanisms that we've learned for a long time. We choose to submit to someone else's judgment, we choose to surrender the outcome or the future we choose to own to take ownership of the terror that we've created in God's world for david king david this was especially grievous i can't even imagine some of the sins he he used his immense and unchecked power to rape Bathsheba and then to create this murder plot around Uriah, her husband, for a kind of a cover-up, cleanup. And then he was exposed in this web of deceit by Nathan the prophet. And uh, scripture always has these amazing ironies. Nathan's name means uh, a gift. <laughs> Nathan, so uh, Nathan's exposure of David was, in some weird way, a gift. And, and so Nathan, uh, the prophet, comes to David and, and weaves this tale, this kind of parable, about a rich man who cheated a poor man out of a meal and out of his lamb. And surely this was not anywhere close to as bad as something that David had conspired towards, but David was able to see even in Nathan's hypothetical, how bad someone else's sin was. David seethed (laughs) and then Nathan turned it back on him and said, you're that man, you're the man that phrase, which is kind of the whole point for being a person in power so that people come to you and point at you and say, you're the man. (laughs) That phrase opened up David to seeing his own sin and to confessing it. Eugene Peterson um, traces the logic of the good news in this, which is lets us really deal with the bad news about ourselves. He says, first, we have to get around our third person defenses and compel a second person recognition and then enable a first person response. We have to move from what he did to what you did to what I did is what is kind of happening in this narrative logic of Nathan's story for David. I wonder how we would be changed if, if we underwent that process of of looking on the easily seeable sins of other people and then slowly processing that towards us to be able to better see our sins and our part. Um, Again, other people's sins are still sins, right? Um, But I wonder how it would change like the consumption our consumption of the news if this is how we read more in the first person than in the third person how our conversations and our social media would change if we made this shift or how our ability to empathize with even like our weirdest neighbors who we disagree with and despise how our empathy would increase i wonder how our grace would increase for people in our household if we started thinking about our sin in the first person. If we went from being able to see their sins, to being able to see our own sin, I think this is the road to confession. The Psalm says have mercy on me God, according to your faithful love, wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion, wash me completely clean of my guilt, purify me from my sin i know my wrongdoings my sin is always right in front of me my sin is always right in front of me so if the first stage of confession is to be able to see sin the second is to be able to express that as sin to be able to tell the truth about that sin that is always right in front of me these confessions shouldn't be a secret I'll speak for myself in saying that, for me, confession of sin has kind of taken the route in my life that evangelism has. And this might be a weird connection, so stay with me on this. Like, I think because I'm I'm leery of all the empty confessions we see in our society, seemingly empty confessions, the way they mostly just feel like PR statements to, to make sure we hedge against, like, future legal action, so we're going to say just enough sorry just to get people off our back i'd rather just jump in and do the work of repair right this is kind of like the preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words kind of way of confessing it's not really confessing it's just getting on with trying to fix the thing that i did wrong when the problem is it's in the same way that it's really difficult to like convey the quote news that we call good without using good words it's also really hard to apologize without like with silence right if words make worlds words of confession repair worlds that have been torn or damaged by our sin so our words of confession matter the the they're good even if they're hard the psalmist says and yes you want truth in the most hidden places you teach me wisdom in the secret space and then he goes on to say lord open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise any good confession is going to require an undoing and a regrowing of trust in a reestablishing of wisdom that'll most likely happen in silent, in secret over a long period of time. But there also must be an opening and a reopening towards and about the goodness of a God who gives and forgives. So we use our words to confess. In our house recently, we've, we've hit, a couple of those ruts and uh, the parents can put an amen in the chat if they want to on this. Uh, We've hit kind of those ruts where it seems like you're saying the same things and doing the same things over and over and you're striking or having the same nerves and you struck over and over again. It can be really disheartening and exhausting to break these cycles. And doing this with the kids is like tough and sanctifying work. I got into a conversation uh, the other day that kind of went a lot deeper than I had originally meant for it to, to kind of go. And the gist of it, and again, without naming names, uh, I can say that it, it was something like, you know, taking the kid aside, consoling, but also speaking firmly and saying, buddy, you're not the kind of person who fill in the blank. Like, you're not the kind of person who says mean things or is sneaky or hits people under the table because you're frustrated. Um, And you're not the kind of person was kind of how all these things started. Except you are, (laughs) if you are doing those things. Except we all are. Confessing our sins before God, who already knows us and who we are, is a reminder to us that it's always worse than we even thought. (laughs) We thought we weren't the kind of people who, again, fill in the blank. We thought we weren't the kind of people who put our hopes in idols, except we do or we thought we weren't the kind of people who would be duped by another leader whose private life is gross and disordered and destructive until we are. Or we thought we weren't the type of people who are invested in systems of racism and oppression, but we are. Like, <laughs> it is in this world very much true that the, the person you are becoming and the person you are is very related to what you do. That is inescapable. If that is true for the good, it is also true for the ghastly. Lovers love, murderers murder, sinners sin. And confession stares this directly into the eyes and more accurately lets God stare directly into our eyes and says, Have mercy on me. I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. Full stop. Without the next sentence. It's a confession without the absolution. To confess is to hang in the balance, to live in the discomfort of the lives we are making for ourselves. It really is worse than we thought. But just when we think there's no coming back, just when we start to come around to the idea that there shouldn't be any coming back, maybe we really are unredeemable. Maybe we deserve what we get. Just then, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God uncancels us. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. God takes something, takes someone ruined, broken, crushed, and transfigures it into something new, something beautiful. As Katie's saying, something that blooms. Not because these cracks aren't visible, but because they are. David's own story moves from him, look at the verbs in this, looking at Bathsheba, seeing her beauty and taking it for his own to being made beautiful by God for having been broken down in the recognition, sorrow, and confession of his own sin. It's also better than we ever thought. I have sinned against the Lord is a sentence full of hope. Peterson, again, is a biblical language scholar. So he points out that in Psalm 51, there are four different Hebrew words used to name David's sin. That's probably four more than we use normally. But there are 19 different verbs used to invoke or declare God's action of forgiveness and restoration. Do you see the the, the imbalance here in the psalm? David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. Psalm 51 then moves, I think this is also important, moves to... Uh, it concludes with Do good things for Zion by your favor, rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness, entirely burnt offerings and complete offerings, and bulls will again be sacrificed at your altar. This re established relationship, this rebuilt city. If our eyes are ever able to lift to see the hurts of this world and the need of restoration, if our voices are ever able to muster the words of lament, if we have any hope for healing and forgiveness, it has to arise from the experience and the conviction of that my sin, that your sin, that that our sin, enormous as it was and is, this is not to minimize it, that our sin is wildly outdone by God's grace on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. Our sin, as massive it is, wildly outdone by God's grace. Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, which we'll share in a moment, recalls this. It remembers and it enacts Again, these verbs, God, taking and blessing and breaking and giving this restorative life of beauty and new creation to all who receive. So we come to the table with penitent hearts, not beating ourselves up, but also not numb to or dishonest about our own sin. That we might then be Opened, all that ground cleared so that something new might grow, that we might be open to receive God's immense grace. Because, friends, it is this whole groaning creation and ourselves within it. We are both better and worse than we ever thought. And that is the good news of confession. Will you pray with me? Lord, by your steadfast love and mercy, you don't run away from us when we come to you. You don't fling us out of your presence or take your spirit away. You stay and you stand and you wait for us to use this vocabulary some of it's old and some of it's brand new this vocabulary of confession which is part of the vocabulary of your grace and forgiveness lord as we look out on a world that is so hurt and so hurting let us also have the words and the courage to express the ways that we are hurt and that we hurt others, that you might repair us, that you might restore us, that you might walk with us. We give you thanks, all these things, in the name of Jesus. Amen.